You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. How's everyone doing? Feeling good? Hate to say it, but we're nearing the end of our summertime. Yeah, just means you'll all come back to church instead of camping. Glad you're here with us this morning. Glad you're joining online. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, the last couple of weeks have been kind of hectic for me. We were camping and we were in Plattsburgh, so it's been a couple of weeks since I've been here in Messina. Um, always miss it when I'm not here. But uh, a few weeks back, uh, getting back into our series here, I kind of finished talking about Genesis and talking about, you know, where we began in our Garden to city series here, and now we're into the book of Revelation. And so, you know, if there's any book in the Bible that most people want to skip, it's the book of Revelation, right? Um, It's not the simplest book in the world to read through and to understand what's going on. And so we're going to kind of start to tackle that. We're not going to get into every detail, but really we want to just walk through what's the purpose? Why is this here in the scriptures? Why is this you know, a, a huge book in the, the New Testament and in the Bible. And obviously it's pointing to something, but we want to get into kind of the themes of it and then some of the overarching stuff. So I want to start simply with this. The, the title of the book is called Revelation, but the actual, uh, like, translation, because when they did this in the King James, the word apocalypse is actually the word you can see it right there. I wrote it down, I think, in your notes, Revelation, Apocalypsis. That's the Greek word that was used for the title of this book. But at the time that the King James Version of the Bible came out, Apocalypse was not a word that anybody used in the English language. Now, we know what it means, right? Or we think we do. Because we watch tons of movies. And we watch all sorts of, you know, end-of-the-world type movies, the Apocalypse-type movies, you know, There's tons of movies out there or books about that kind of thing. And so we have this kind of thought that comes into our mind when we hear the word apocalypse. But really it's it's kind of a a poor way of understanding that word. Because they took that word from this book and that Greek understanding. And, you know, because kind of what has happened with the book of Revelation is that it has been totally boxed up and portrayed as this is about the end of the world. But I'll tell you right now, that's not the right way to see the book of Revelation. It's not the right way to understand exactly what was written in here. Now, sure, there is some kind of forward future thinking that happens in here and stuff that we can look at in that way. But the truth is, it was still a a letter, actually, a number of letters, a revelation written down by John on the Isle of Patmos. And it was for the people of that day. It's for us now. And it is for the future. But if we box it up and we just think apocalypse or we think in the terms of how we understand that word, we kind of just always go to, oh, it talks about the end of the world. And that's not actually the case of this book. So let's just read the very first verse. I'm actually going to spend most of our time in chapter 2 today. Um, So this is verse 1, chapter 1. It says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. So that's. Um, one of it, I think up here, okay, they've got the NLT. I saw that posted differently. There's some other ones, but I want to pull out a few words in this. One is obviously revelation. 
Now, that's the word we chose for the English translation. Why? Because apocalypse actually means to suddenly reveal, to disclose openly. It doesn't mean to end. (laughs) But it just means that something that was hidden is now actually shown. Something that was unknown before is now revealed to me. That's what that word apocalypsis mean, or a revelation. So we understand it when we hear the word revelation, because it was like, oh, my eyes were open. I now understand something I didn't understand before. So we have to just try to move away a little bit from our thinking that this is only about the end of the world. So it says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events. And most of your translations will say that must soon take place. But a lot of your translations, if you have a Bible on your lap, uh, it probably does not show it up there. But where it says soon, does everybody have a little asterisk there? Look at your Bible. There's like four of you in here that have one. No, I'm just kidding. More than that. And there's always free ones, right? We got free ones in the back. If you look at that word soon, because most of the places it's translated soon, it has a little asterisk because actually, again, it was this difficult translation. They were trying to pick which best fit. It can also mean this, Suddenly. That which will suddenly take place. And it's this idea that there's a revelation that's going to come, and it says this message to the servants of God that's going to suddenly take place. Now, of course, for many, many years we've read this, and it says that will soon take place, and we can easily start to think, well, the end of the world's just around the corner. And I'll just say, as I've always said, we might be closer today than we were yesterday, but we have no idea when this will take place, or when the end of the world scenario, or when Jesus comes back is going to take place. But I'll tell you, for 2,000 years, because this is when this was written, they've been thinking maybe it's going to be soon. So let's just be honest and say we don't really know, but we should always have a heart of readiness. That's part of what this book is about. That it literally prepares us as people, regardless of what century or decade or millennium that we live in, whether Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime or whether he comes back in 10 lifetimes or a 1,000 lifetimes from now, that we have a heart of readiness as Christians to understand what does God actually expect from us. That's actually what this book is mostly about. It teaches us what is God looking for when he looks at his church and at his bride. We're going to see the church described as his bride throughout the the book of Revelation. And we're going to see all these super odd and awkward symbolic things that take place. But it's speaking to the church. It's speaking to the people of God. It's speaking to the Jewish nation. And there's there's things here that we should say, okay, what is God saying when he's saying these things to us? whether it's for the people in the past, us now in the present, or even those in the future. Is this making sense? Are we on the same page a little bit? All right, so here we are, the book of Revelation. The first chapter is basically um, this angel that comes to John. John's on the Isle of Patmos. Most people believe that this is John, the disciple John. But actually, just a random fact that people think it might not be the, the apostle John. I don't think it really matters. (laughs) It was written by someone named John who is in captivity. And he's obviously accepted by most of the Christian world at the time to be speaking these visions or these ideas that are sent to him by God. And so he has this vision. 
He has this revelation from God, this unveiled moment, and he says, well, I've got to write this down because actually that's what the angel tells him to do, write this down, and now we're going to actually give it to the church world at large of what is God saying in this moment. And so we get to chapter 2, and I want to read through. So there's what happens in chapter 2 is we've got seven churches that are listed, and each church gets a letter. And the letter is written by Jesus. Now, now John writes it down, but Jesus is the one speaking in these. And we're going to see a bunch of things happen in each letter that kind of, uh, some of it's repetitive, and some of it is kind of using each letter as a different moment to explain something different. One of the things you're going to see in each letter is that there are seven different descriptions of who Jesus is. You see, it doesn't say, hey, this is from Jesus. Like the first one in Ephesus says, this, is, this message is from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands. It's describing something about Jesus. Then we're going to see this message given to the church, and then we're going to kind of see this repetitive ending at the end of each one of those letters, and it really matters what's happening in each one. And so that's what we're going to kind of walk through today. And this is John. He's writing down this revelation to the church, and we're going to read it today. Okay, let's start verse 1, chapter 2. Are we ready? You awake? Okay. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance, I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. And you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. A few weeks back, I, I used this kind of ending Genesis and, and talking about money. But let's keep going. So here you've got Jesus, and he's saying some good things about the church in Ephesus in verse 4. But he says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Let's stop there for a moment. So you've got this, these first few verses in there where Jesus is giving kind of this admonishing encouragement. Like, hey, good job at this. You, were, you patiently endured. You know, you, you, you waited for me well. But then, you know, he even says things like, you didn't, uh, you didn't put up with anybody that's evil. But then he goes on to explain that, you know, sometimes I think we can read that or in, in a sense think, well, nobody should have any problems that comes to church. But that's not the case. Actually, what he's saying, because the very next verse is this, you have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. In fact, actually what Jesus is speaking against is religious people who don't actually act like they're Christ followers. And so he's saying, you don't, you're not doing that. You, you're, you're looking at people who claim to be apostles, and you found them to be liars. It means you're looking at people who claim to be Christian, and when they really aren't, you notice that they weren't. And you're not following their ways. 
But then he goes on to say, but the complaint I do have is you don't love me and each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen, he says. Then it says, turn back to me and do the works you did at first if you don't repent. Now listen, a lot of these letters are going to have something about repentance. Simply repentance, let's go back real quick, means this. A change of mind and direction. I mean, Jesus literally says it twice because just before that he says, turn back to me. That literally is repentance. It's when we're going one way in life, our own way, and something happens and we say, oh, I don't want to go this way. I'm going to repent of this direction of my life, which just simply means I'm now going to turn away and go towards God. I'm going to follow after him. And you see this warning come to the church of Ephesus. What's interesting is the warning is this. If you don't repent, what does it say? I will remove my lampstand from among you. Now, we can understand through other scripture and this imagery, all the imagery actually in these letters, even if it's weird to us, made a lot of sense to the people in that day. Because those churches were seven churches that actually existed. And those seven churches would have read this letter even in that day. And it would have said something to them that it doesn't really say to us just by simply reading it. And we have to understand, and even there, these seven churches, you know, they weren't the only churches that existed then. So we ask ourselves, why, why these seven? Well, I think there's something within these seven churches that God is wanting to show us. And the same with the, the church of Ephesus. Now, the church of Ephesus at the time was known to be the largest church. It was the biggest one, and in most eyes, it would have been the most successful. We know that Timothy was there for quite a long time, and Paul spent a lot of time with Timothy. But what we see the warning here is, if you don't repent, meaning if you don't, and let, what's the repentance about? Do we remember? Love me and love each other as you did at first. He doesn't say if you just, if you memorize your scriptures better. Or if you do just more right things, then I won't take my lampstand. No, he says if you repent, and what he's talking about is if you learn to love me and each other as you did at first, I won't remove my lampstand from you. Now, if you go to Ephesus today, it's actually one of the least cities with churches in the entire world. There's actually, they would say, statistically, there's no active, thriving church there at all. They don't believe there's a single church in Ephesus with over 100 people in it that's Christian. And I would just say we could look at this warning that was given to them a couple thousand years ago and then look today and go, did they hear it? And when I read a letter like this, and then I start to think, well, is Jesus saying something similar to us? I think he is. Is he, is he warning us through this church in Ephesus for his church today in 2022? And 100 years from now, could people look back on New Testament church? Let's just talk about us literally as a church. Could they look back on New Testament church and see a warning thought like this, like, hey, you need to learn to love God and love others as you did at first. And if we didn't, that maybe we would become kind of ineffective in the world, which is what's happened with Ephesus. Maybe a church would still be here, and a few people would still come because they're just kind of holding on, but don't we see that a whole lot? The entire North Country is filled with churches with less than 20 people. And numbers isn't the goal, but, but 
building the kingdom is. And if people aren't coming to Christ, if people aren't flourishing and thriving in the kingdom of God, then we have to ask ourselves what happened. And one of the first warnings we get, in fact, I think there's a reason it is the first warning we get through this letter to the Ephesus church is you don't love me and each other as you did at first. I think if we want to remain effective in the world, if we want our lamp stand to actually shine for the world to see, it only happens when we love each other and God as we did at first. Meaning when we, when we had abandoned everything else and it's all that we thought about. This is the warning he gives the church. Let's move on. Verse 8, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. We see this, another description of Jesus here, the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Verse 9, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Ouch. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. You hear some similarities in this letter. Can anybody point out real quick, what are the repetitive things that we've seen so far? Anybody? Ears to hear. So you've seen this now in the first two. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Every single one of the letters written to the churches is going to say this. Now, all of us understand what's trying to be said here. We all have ears, right? But this is saying anyone with ears to hear. All of, us as, all of us as parents understand what this means. Because there are times when we're saying things to our children, and it's going in their actual eardrum, it's probably being processed in their brain to some degree, but yet nothing takes place. That's what we say, you're listening, but you don't hear me. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's, he's going to warn literally every church this. It's a warning. Anyone with ears to hear. He knows you have ears, but he's kind of asking, will you hear me? And it says, must listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is why we can easily read these letters and say, this is for us just as much as it was for them 2,000 years ago. Because here we are, the church in 2022, and I think Jesus wants to know, do you have ears to hear me? Will you actually listen to what the Spirit's saying to the churches? Or will you just buckle down in your belief system and in your tradition and in your practices and in your duties and in your religiosity, but you no longer can hear what Jesus is saying? That's the danger. You see, in this church in Smyrna, basically, it was a small church. It was actually known at the time as the smallest of the churches in the whole region. There was not very many Christians in Smyrna. Why? Because it was actually filled mostly with Jews who had remained faithful just to Judaism and did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And here, Jesus comes out 
And he says, listen, and actually the Jews of the, in that city controlled most of the trade. And the reason he says, I see your poverty is because they actually kept the Christians from being able to trade. They kept them from even being able to buy goods. And so these Christians were living in this city surrounded by Jews who hated them and were purposely going about trying to make their life difficult. So they were in poverty. They were having Jews that were blaspheming them, it says. And Jesus says, I see it. I see what's happening. He says, I see your suffering and your poverty. But he, then he says, but you are rich. Don't worry, I'll fix it. He doesn't even say, I'm going to come and rescue you. And actually, the story gets worse. He says, oh, don't worry, you're going to end up in jail for 10 days. Now, days literally is translated days here, but most people would have never read it as a specific amount of 10 days. In that day, they would have understood it as just a period of time. 10 periods of time, whatever that means. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. I see it, but trust me, you are rich. And he goes on to promise this. There's something else that we see happen in both of these letters, and we're going to see in every one. The last verse, it says this, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. If you go back just to the scripture before, it says, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is referring to this idea that though we live here on earth as physical people, and we may die an actual physical death, that there's a possibility of a second death. That there's a possibility that even though we die here, that there's a possibility we could die again. Now, you can translate that as hell or whatever you really want to feel like. But what it means like is that there's a spiritual side of who you are that may die. And if you give up all of those things in this world, the second death is much more fearful than the first one. And Jesus says, listen, you don't have to fear the second death if you remain faithful to me. He says, to those who remain victorious. This is an interesting thought when he's talking to people who are in poverty, who are suffering, and in jail. But then he says, but if you're victorious. Well, that seems contradictory, Jesus. You're telling me I'm going to get thrown in prison, but you're also telling me to be victorious. And we see it, we're going to see it in every one of the letters. It makes me think. Being victorious has nothing to do with my circumstances. It makes me think that victorious in this context is something that's probably within me, within my mind, within my spirit, that the world cannot touch if I'm connected to God. And you see, he doesn't say at the end of these letters, hey, for those of you that, that just hung on barely, here's a promise. He says, no, but to those of you who are victorious, in the first letter with Ephesus, he says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life to the paradise of God. This one, he says, to whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. There's this, there's this reassurance that God is giving in each letter. If you remain victorious with me, no matter your outside circumstances, I am going to bless you. And I think as the church today, or even as individuals today, we should look at a letter like this to Smyrna and go, regardless of my circumstances, 
Regardless of whether I'm suffering or in jail or even in poverty, God has a place for me to be victorious even in those situations. Let's keep going. Verse 12, it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. This is an interesting picture. There's another part of it where it's talking about a, a, a being, or it probably is Jesus with a two-edged sword that's coming from his mouth. The idea of a two-edged sword, when just even in battle, was that you could fight both ways. <laughs> that you could take on multiple combatants at the same time, that you were basically more effective than anything. And so we see this kind of language. Now, to us, it sounds weird and a little bit out of there, but the truth is in that day, it would have made complete sense for them to say that this is coming, that he is with a two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to rip up the people of Israel, trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you, you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. There it is again. And here it is, the next part. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. All right, there's a lot in here. That when you just read it, you're like, what, what? What is this supposed to mean to me? So I want to walk through it a little bit. So first off, um, Pergamum here, and the reason that the letter is written in the way is it would have made a lot of sense to them. Pergamum, and, he, and it starts with this. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Well, Pergamum was actually the site of a huge shrine of a healing god called Asclepius. And Asclepius is like, you know, picture that they used for him was a gigantic serpent. And so they're in the middle of the city, the biggest temple there, had a gigantic serpent on it. And so for them to say, you live in the city where Satan has his throne, it would have made sense because they associated Satan and serpent as synonymous. We see it from Genesis, right? And so they were looking and they would say, look at, oh, you live in the city where Satan is. Because <laughs> there's this giant snake on this big, huge temple. And so... For him to refer to that would have made complete sense to them. And then he says, yet you have remained loyal to me. So you have this incredible amount of pressure from the outside that wants you to kind of live and worship to another God. All of the city is going to be worshiping that God, but you've remained loyal to me. But then he goes on to say, but I do have some complaints. And the complaints that we see, it says, you tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. So that is a, a, a story from the Old Testament. And that story is actually just where Balaam came in, and what took place was 
they didn't stop people from being Jews. They just added some junk to them. They just said, well, listen, you can still be Jewish and worship a pagan god. You can still be Jewish, but you can, you can also have this. And so, so basically, Balaam ends up convincing the Israel people to have this mixed religious experience with God rather than what God had designed for them to have. And then he goes on to, he mentions another group of people, which we really have no idea about, called the Nicolaitans. We heard about them in the last one. And he's saying, you, you're follow, some of you are following the ways of the Nicolaitans as well. And it was this idea that these people would want to follow God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give their lives to Christ, but then they would still want to keep doing all the things they used to do. And one of the complaints here as well is it says, you eat um, food offered to idols. Well, the reason that that was always a big no-no, because it wasn't really just about the food, was in that day... When you ate with someone, it literally was an immediate affirmation of who they were and everything they did. So if you ate food offered to idols, you were affirming what that religious experience was. And so it was just a no-no for them to say, listen, don't even make others think you're okay with that religion. That, that religion, that, that, that thing, you should not be mixing with it. And then, of course, you'll see it's almost always coupled together. Those who ate food offered to idols and committed sexual immorality. Well, because usually the practice of other religions was both of those. And he's saying one will lead to the other. Don't get caught up in that. And he's talking about this atmosphere that took place within this city and within the Christians of that city where they were becoming mixed with the ways of the world around them. And then you get down to this promise, right? It's kind of an interesting one. It says, to everyone who's victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. I think simply that just means God's going to give provision for us. That's what manna always has represented. But then he says, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. So you and I reading that are like, well, that's weird. I wonder what that means. Well, in that city, in that day, almost everything was built with black stones. The whole city was actually next to a mining operation that mined these black stones. And so the temple specifically, the, the one that they said is Satan's throne, was built in black. Almost all the religious places, all the different shrines and pagan places were built in black. And so when you wanted something to stand out in that city... They would actually, instead of putting it black, they would start to engrave it in white stone so that amongst the black, it would stand out. You see, this is the picture that Jesus is saying to them. I'm going to give you a white stone. In that city, those people would have known immediately what he meant. Oh, we're going to stand out. We're actually going to be separate from. We're not going to be mixed with this, this whole backdrop of black stones. And he goes on to say, I'm going to give you a new name. And it's this understanding that when we come to Christ, that we no longer look the way we used to look, but we're actually a new creation. We see that all throughout the Gospels, right? We see this new creation that God makes us, and, he, and often even his disciples, right? He gives them a new name. And so there's this warning in this idea that's given to this church specifically that's saying to them, don't look like the world around you. Even when you know God, he say, now he's already said, you've been loyal to me. 
But there's this part where he's saying, but you don't look like me enough yet. You're in a city of black and you still kind of look just like them. So let me make you a white stone in a world full of darkness. I think this is something he's admonishing the church even today. It's easy for us just to go about our life looking like everyone else, except maybe the only thing different is you wake up early on Sunday and go to church. But if someone looks at your life, do they see anything different? Do they, do they look at you and say, man, why does that person love people like he does? Why is that person generous like they are? Why, why does that couple, you know, make it through difficulty and, and hard, you know, circumstances? Why is that family succeeding even in the midst of, of difficult life and stuff? People should look at our lives and not think, well, yeah, they're just like me. We should stand out a bit. This is what Jesus is admonishing the church in Pergamum. Let's move on. Got a few more churches to get to. The message to the church in Thyatira. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I want to stop real quick. This city was known actually for its bronze making. It was filled with smelters. And they made bronze and shipped it all over the world. So I think it's funny that Jesus' first explanation of himself literally to them is that he says, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. He's speaking to them in their language. He wants them to understand what he's saying. It's not supposed to be a mystery. We read it 2,000 years later and it feels mysterious. But it's not supposed to be. Verse 19, I know all the things you do. We've heard that before. That's a message in itself. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Man, if there was a letter written to me from Jesus, I wish it would say that and stop there. I can see your constant improvement in all these things, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. Let me just stop there. Literally, you kind of hear this idiom that gets placed in there, this idea that there was this common language being literally used in that city in that time, saying, oh, we're looking for deeper truths. And I think, isn't that the truth today? Everyone's looking for some sort of deeper truths. But then Jesus literally says, depths of Satan, actually. Like, don't, don't get strayed aside by all of these things that wants to pull you into some sort of mysterious truth and, and all this stuff. I mean, there's so much out there today. Keep going. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, 
To them I will give authority over all the nations, and they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. That's Jesus, actually. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So here we are in Thyatira. And we see this kind of language coming out. It's actually quite similar to the last letter. We've got another Bible story, another Old Testament Bible story brought in with this term Jezebel. And if you know the story with Jezebel, Jezebel was basically a queen, a wife to the the king of the time. And she led uh, a lot of pagan prophets. And you see this kind of, you know, competition that takes place between um, their prophets, and I'm going to mess it up, but I think it was Elijah, and you see this, I'm always confused, Elijah or Elisha, you can be confused too, um, and you see this story take place, and Elijah is actually terrified of Jezebel, and he runs from her, and she has kind of infiltrated the, the, the system of Judaism at that time, and she's led people astray, and that's He's taking this kind of story from the Old Testament. He's bringing it back to their attention, and he's saying, don't get led astray again. Now, he, he, you don't know whether this is literal or true in the sense of is there an actual woman in the church who is acting as a Jezebel and leading people astray, or is it just a spirit of things? I think today we could say there's kind of a spirit of things that sometimes just tries to lead us astray, and, and the whole thing with Jezebel was it was kind of in a seductive way. She presented things as better and nicer and, and almost seduced people away into a different way of following God that wasn't following God at all. And that's what, what he's warning the church. Don't get led astray. Don't get seduced into something else. Don't just follow what feels good and what looks nice and what makes you, what makes you kind of, you know, Feel good. I, there's other words that is actually in the Old Testament, but I don't want to use it. <laughs> and so he's saying, don't get led astray by this spirit. And so it's kind of similar to Pergamum where it's like, hey, you're, you're there, you're a church, you're representing me, but you're getting led astray, and I'm asking you not to. And then he's saying, you're, some of you are following these deeper truths. And he goes on to this, to all who are victorious. And I, I think this is interesting because he goes on to promise them It says, I will give you authority over all the nations. And there's this place where even in the midst of releasing, God wants to give authority. You see, this whole idea of like searching for truth, I think it's happening today just as much as then. Sometimes it's like we think if we can find it, then we can grab hold of it and hold on to it tightly. In a sense, we'll be be better than we ever were. We'll have more than we had before. But what's kind of contradictory about following Jesus is the more we actually release our own followings, our own desires, and our own wantings in life, the more we release those, the more actually God gives us in authority. And he's promising the church, if you remain victorious to me, if you you remain obedient to me, I will make you, I will make you rulers of all the nations. This is the promises that we're seeing. We're starting to see these promises that if, If we heed the warnings of God for us as individuals and us as a church, that God wants to bless us in many different ways. Let's keep going. It says, write this letter. This is chapter 3 now. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message 
from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do, and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. <laughs> That'd be a harsh way to read a letter from Jesus. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So the church in Sardis, well, the city of Sardis, was positioned on a really high hill. And the story behind this city is that for many, many years, decades, even hundreds of years, they believed, because they built this huge fortress on top of a city, that they were impenetrable. They believed they could never be conquered. But you see, recent in their history, right after this letter was written to them, their city had been conquered. And the story is that Cyrus of Persia, which we know through history, he comes to the city of, Cy of Sardis, and they basically mocked him. They said, yeah, give it a shot. Everyone else has tried to conquer us. And it was surrounded by these giant cliffs that were nearly impossible to climb. And so they really didn't worry about Cyrus of Persia. But the storyline is here is that they had gotten lazy, especially the watchmen on the towers. And the story that actually took place in history was that the watchmen would go to work, but they, they thought, we're good. Nothing can actually conquer us. And so they would fall asleep. And the story goes that Cyrus of Persia sends some of his elite soldiers, and they scale the walls of the city. They scale the cliffs. They scale the walls. And they themselves are surprised to come over the walls and find no one ready to meet them. And so they take over the city. They murder people in their sleep. They sack the city. They destroy it and burn it to the ground. And they steal everything. It's in the history books. And so then you get this letter that's written to the church in Sardis. And they're going to be thinking about their own history. And it says, you think you're awake, but you're not. And immediately it would have triggered their memory going, well, that happened to us before. And he says, if you don't wake up, I will come to you like a thief. This is Jesus saying it. All this language would have spoke to them easily. They would have said, that is exactly what took place before. We thought we were good. And so we fell asleep while we were supposed to be on watch, while we were supposed to be defending and guarding our city. We fell asleep, and the thieves came, and they destroyed everything. We can't let that happen again. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. He's using their own history to try to explain, listen, don't fall asleep at the wheel of your life. Don't fall asleep as a church in Christianity. Don't just get, you know, sometimes we do this. We have this experience with God. We have this experience with Jesus. We come to him. We even start coming to church, but then we just kind of settle in and we're like, oh, we're good. 
I'm fine. I got saved. By grace, through faith, woohoo, I'm going to heaven. And we get kind of lazy, and, and then before you know it, church isn't that important. I can watch online. It's okay if you are today. And what happens is you slip back. It's easy to end up finding your way back from where you once were. And just like those in Sardis that were surprised by this kind of surprise attack, it's easy to wake up and go, wait, how did I get here? How many of us have done that before? It's like your life, you think it's going fine, but then all of a sudden something happens that shocks you to this place, and you're trying to figure out, how did I get from there to here? I mean, when I was, I felt like just a minute ago I was over here following Jesus. Life was good. I was giving him everything I had, but here I am back in the same place I once was before. This is what he's warning of them. He's warning this church, don't fall asleep in your Christianity. Don't fall asleep in your faith. Because just because you are saved by grace doesn't mean that there isn't an enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy you. And if you aren't aware, if you aren't at least paying attention, something could easily happen where you get taken over. This is, the, this is what he's speaking and warning to this church. Don't fall asleep in your Christianity. Don't fall asleep. And he goes on to kind of give this promise. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. I could go into a whole thing about that, but I don't think we want our names erased from the book of life. It actually freaks me out that it can get erased. I'm going to jump to the last church here. The message to the church in Laodicea. Verse 14, it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. He says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Let's jump down to verse 20. It says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the church. So I want to end with talking about Laodicea a little bit. You see, Laodicea was actually close to the church we just skipped, which is Philadelphia. Both of them had suffered a, a major earthquake 50 years probably about before this letter. And the church in Philadelphia had received a grant from the Roman government to rebuild its city. The Roman government came and said, hey, we're going to help you out. The Roman government also came to Laodicea and said, hey, we're going to help you out. We see the Laodiceans were rich. They had plenty of money, and they literally said, and, and kind of as a sense of pride, they said, we don't need you. They rejected this grant from the Roman government. 
And so even in this letter, you, you see this language take place that Jesus is admonishing the church. He's saying, you're kind of like the Laodiceans in your city who rejected the help from their king. He says, I come to you and you act like you don't need me. You think you're rich, but you're not. You've given your life for gold. That literally is this, this thing that you can hold in your hands. But I'm telling you, ask for the gold that I can give you. And he's challenging them because of the way that they're, in a sense, rejecting. Yes, they know God and they're following him. But he's saying, you act like you don't need me. I think this is an easy one to put on the church in America today. We have everything we need. We, we have our pensions and our 401ks and our health insurance and we make plans for every possible thing that can take place. And I think that sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is recognize our actual need for Jesus. And this is the warning that he's giving the Laodicean church. He's saying, you still need me. You might not feel like it right now, but he says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The story behind that is that the Laodicean church had no water source of its own. They piped water from a mountaintop on one side of the city, and then they piped water from a hot springs on the other. The water was cold when it left the mountaintop, but by the time it reached the city, it was lukewarm. The water was hot when it left the hot springs, but by the time it reached the city, it was lukewarm. And there's a sense that he's speaking to them right in their language saying, listen, I want you to be hot or cold. I want you to be for me or against me. I, I don't want this in-between life with you. I want everything that you are. I don't want you to not need me. This is the challenge he's giving to the church. I think it's actually one of the biggest challenges he's speaking to the church in America specifically today. Do you still need me? Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. I think that these, the beginning of this book, Revelation, is these seven letters specifically because I think God's really asking the church today and throughout history and even in the future, will you actually listen to what I'm saying to you? Will you hear the words that I'm trying to warn of you? Will you take heed of these stories within these seven churches? Will you see what took place in their lives and in their decisions? And will you hopefully make a different decision for yourself? Why don't we stand this morning? I want to leave you with just these couple questions. The first one is one that I'm asking myself and ourselves as a church. It says, what is Jesus trying to reveal to us as a church through these letters? I think as a church, we should be asking all the time, God, what are you saying to us? I want to hear what you're saying. I want to know where you're leading. I, I don't want to just follow my own ideas or my own ways, but I want to hear what the Spirit is saying. Even as I've been preparing for this message over the last number of weeks, my thought was, Jesus, if you have some correction for us, correct us. I don't want to have such an attitude as a leader or as a Christian that I've got it all figured out. I don't have it figured out. I don't want to have this attitude that 
that we've made it or we've arrived in some way. We have not arrived. And though I believe Jesus' letter to us would be filled with a lot of great admonishing and encouragement, I think he might have a complaint or two. I want Jesus to say those to me now because I don't want to wake up one day when it's too late and the thief has come in. I don't want to wake up one day and find out that we missed something that God had for us. I want God to come and speak to us right now, August 28th in 2022. What do you have for us as a church, Jesus? What are you speaking to us right now, Holy Spirit? And as much as we do that as a church, we should be doing this for our lives. As individuals, we should read these letters. And it's not just this corporate thinking. It's literally for me as a person, God, how am I fitting into these letters? How am I in need of some sort of redirection and re-correction in my life to follow you better? To represent you better in this world. That's what we should be taking away from this. And even as we've done this series from Genesis to Revelation, Garden to City, there's this place of looking at humanity. How did we start? What was God's design? And now how are we going to end up as humanity? And what is God expecting from us in that? This is just the beginning of it. Of us kind of hopefully getting our act together as the church globally and saying, we better represent Jesus well in this world. Today, I just want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as we go that there would be some conviction today and even some aha moments where Jesus is just saying, hey, this is, this is a little bit like you. Let him, let him push on you a little this morning. Let him redirect you a little this morning. So God, we thank you what you're speaking to us. God, I, I just want to say collectively as a church, as Leaders in this church, God, even as an individual for my own life, God, I want to have ears to hear, so help me hear you. Maybe even right where you're at this morning, in your seats at home, I would ask you, just whisper that, God, I have ears to hear you. I want to hear what your spirit is saying, Jesus. I want to follow you in all your ways. So God, I ask right now that you would come and speak clearly to our hearts. Come and speak clearly to our lives. Don't let anything distract us. God, don't let sense of religion distract us or sense of tradition. God, don't let us be seduced by the ways of this world. Don't let us just kind of fit in with everything. God, all those warnings, let us somehow take them and actually let them shape us into something new. God, that we could represent you well in this world. God, I thank you for every person in this room, every person online. God, we ask your blessing over every family, your favor over every situation. And in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day. Thanks for sticking with me. And we will see you again next week. All right. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.